together to the scriptures of the New Testament in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, as we read the short section from verse 19 to verse 26. John's Gospel in the New Testament, chapter 4, from verse 19, and we are breaking into the well-known interview between the Lord Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you, that is Jesus, are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. May the Lord indeed bless this reading uh, from his word to all our hearts. Thanks be to him. Now we are beginning on this Lord's Day morning a short series of biblical studies together that are biblical topics on the Christian life under the general title of Life in the Spirit, or in the phrase of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, verse 5, living in accordance with the Spirit. And so for this morning and the next two Sunday mornings, we will be looking at the subject of biblical worship today from John chapter 4 in the section that we read together. And next Sunday, we will be considering walking in the Spirit from Galatians 5 and its parallel passages in Romans 8. And on the third Sunday, witnessing in the Spirit or that we might more clearly remember uh, these themes, the three directions in which the Holy Spirit affects our lives. In relation to God today, that is our worship. In relation to ourselves next Sunday, that is our walk. In relation to others on the third Sunday, and that is, of course, our witness, our Christian witness. And thereafter, we will be considering other topics together, such as our adversary, the devil, and our families, and various other matters on these coming Sunday mornings in God's will. Now today, the subject before us is worshipping in the Spirit. And I want us together, as we come to the passage that we read from John chapter 4, to discover in this ministry and message of the Lord Jesus what real spiritual worship is, and how the Holy Spirit may lead us, God's people, into the real worship of God. Now, I suggest to you that there are three things, in fact, 
in verses 23 and 24 particularly, but the Lord Jesus has conveyed to us in a truly remarkable conversation between himself and the Samaritan woman who met the Lord at the well of Sychar. He taught her the supreme importance of worship for one thing. He also taught her the vital prerequisite of spiritual worship. And thirdly, he taught her the essential nature of all true spiritual worship. Now I want you to look with me at these three great matters this morning. First of all, in this passage, there is the supreme importance of spiritual worship. Now let me say to you straight away that the subject of worship is not a usual subject for preaching on or for study or for conferences that Christians often attend. You may well ask yourself, when was a last conference that you've seen advertised with the subject placarded, the worship of God? And the reason why this is not generally a general and a popular subject is that we so often assume that we know all about it. After all, we worship every Sunday, either once or twice on the Lord's Day, and everything that we can know about worship, we already know about it. Yet I suggest to you that when God come da comes down among his people in unusual power and with a rich sense of his presence, we discover at that point how little we really know about true spiritual worship. And one of the great things that we read from the scriptures and learn from them and learn from the history of the Christian church is that even godly men and women who thought that they were worshipping God acceptably and with all their strength, when he really came among them in reviving and quickening power, were humble to the very dust and realized that they had not even begun to scratch the surface of the meaning of biblical and acceptable worship before the Lord. And you know we're living in a day, moreover, where it seems that many Christian people uh, long and hanker after all kinds of innovations in the worship of God, again showing how little they truly understand it. We've got to have this new innovation in the worship service and this other ingredient to make it come alive and so on. And some of you may remember the conference that we held a number of years ago with Sinclair Ferguson who spoke to us in the North Shore Church on the subject of biblical worship. And one of the few illustrations that he used in that remarkable address was how a man who had been in his congregation in Glasgow in Scotland left the congregation and came back a number of years later and was very depressed, Sinclair Ferguson said, to find that nothing had changed and everything was the same, and there were no novelties in the service. And he went away disappointed, because he never realized that true worship depends 
upon the presence of God in the midst of his people. And that is what determines its quality and its depth, as we're going to see this morning from the teaching of Jesus. Now, it is supremely important to spiritually worship God. And there are three things that would indicate this to us, and we're standing back from this passage for a moment. And the first thing is that spiritual worship is what we were created and redeemed for. And I want to tell you this morning that wherever you go in the whole of Scripture, whether it's in this passage of John 4 or any other passage, the inescapable conclusion, beloved, that we come to is this. But the fundamental occupation of God's people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament alike, the basic purpose of God's calling them and redeeming them to himself, is that they might worship him. You find it in the book of Genesis when the patriarchs drew near to God with their altars and sacrifice and the burning smoke ascended into heaven and God was well pleased with their faith expressed in their obedience. You find it in the book of Exodus where you remember that Moses said to Pharaoh on several different occasions, let this people go that they may worship the Lord. You find it summarized in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 3 verse 3 where Paul says of the Christian, we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit and put no confidence in the flesh and rejoice in Christ Jesus. The gospel is given to us to turn us into true worshippers because that is what we were made and what we were redeemed for. Now the second thing, again standing back from this passage, is that God the Holy Spirit is preparing us and leading us on to that worship of God in glory that is the consummation of our salvation. It's demonstrated, in other words, when we look on to the end of our Christian life, when we go from this world into the next, when we leave this body of humiliation behind and enter into a body made perfect and glorious and fitted for the eternal habitations above, what will we be doing in that perfected state that is ours in heaven? Well, the book of Revelation reveals that to us. When God has finished all that he is doing with us and the church is present in glory in heaven, we will be continuously preoccupied with one thing, worship. And you read of that in Revelation 4, to go nowhere else in the book of Revelation with that magnificent picture of the throne of God at the very center of heaven and the Father there and the Lamb there surrounded by the four living creatures and the 24 elders and the countless number of God's redeemed people thousands of thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. 
and they are crying, all of them, in the language of worship, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and power and wealth and might and dominion. And worship is the single sole occupation of the church in heaven. And it's as though the language of heaven tumbles over itself in seeking to praise and adore the ever-living God. It is the characteristic of the church in its perfected state. But the third thing you see is this, and it takes us into our passage, that worship is the supremely important task of the church on earth as well. Now in this passage, it's often suggested that the great theme of it is an example of evangelism, and that is perfectly correct. But you see where this example of evangelism ends as Jesus seeks to lead this Samaritan woman to faith in himself. He offers her water that cannot be found in the well, the water which, if she drinks of it, she will never thirst again. Oh, give me this water, she says. And Jesus changes the subject and asks her about her husband, and she counters that question by introducing the subject of worship. And you might think that that's almost an irrelevancy in this conversation in which Jesus is seeking to lead this soul to himself. But it's not an irrelevancy at all, because Jesus picks up on it, as you notice, in verses 21 through 24, and he enlarges upon it. And the reason why he enlarges upon it is that Jesus is pointing to the fact that the end of all evangelism is worship. For such, he says, the Father seeks to worship him. And in all of this conversation between Jesus and the woman, it is as though the Father is reaching out his hand into the world and seeking this woman for himself in order that she might become a true worshipper of God. And the whole point of this conversation in John chapter 4 is that if this woman is not transformed into a true worshipper of God, all else fails, for the gospel is given to us in order to turn us into true worshippers. Do you see what I'm saying to you? The supreme importance of worship. And it's very interesting to me that in the Bible, the real essence of sin, you know, is not in any outward act that we do, not adultery or theft or lying or cheating. The real essence of sin, which Paul summarizes in Romans chapter 1, is that fallen man worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. And the essence of sin is that fallen man refuses to give to the Creator the worship and the honor and the glory and the adoration that is due to him. And that, too, 
underlines the supreme importance of worship. My dear friend, if the Holy Spirit has come into your life this morning and you profess the name of the Lord Jesus, the work which the Holy Spirit is doing in your life more than anything else is a work designed to make you a true worshiper of God. I wonder if you realize that sufficiently, as you should. Now, the second thing that arises from Jesus' teaching is the vital prerequisite of spiritual worship. And you notice that this is in the passage that we read from in verses 19 through 22, where the woman said, Sir, I I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship and so on. Now, do you notice, as you have your Bible open in front of you and are following the reading with me, do you notice what this passage is really saying to us? The woman is clearly misguided there in verse 20. She's clearly mistaken. Why? Because she associates the true worship of God with a place and a location. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, that is, Mount Gerizim. But you say we should do it in another place and location, in Jerusalem. Now, it's perfectly true that a great difference existed at this time between the Samaritans and the Jews in terms of their conviction of where God was to be worshipped aright. But do you notice that the Lord Jesus immediately in verse 21 corrects her and points out the basic mistake that she is making in thinking that the real necessity, the real prerequisite, was anything physical or external. But rather, the vital prerequisite for true spiritual worship as we come into God's presence is that we might know God personally. Do you notice what he says there in verse 21? You do not know what you worship, but we Jews worship what we know. In other words, the knowledge of God is the true prerequisite for coming into his presence. It's nothing external or physical. It's not associations or holy buildings, or traditions, or our background, or anything else. But what is needed if God's people are to worship him aright is knowledge of God and his requirements. Now let's pursue this for a moment and ask the questions, why did the Samaritans not know God as the Jews did? And why did they make this mistake? And the answer is almost certainly in what they had done with the scriptures. Because at this time, in the history of the Jews and the Samaritans, the Samaritans had abolished most of the scripture and chosen to regard only the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, as the true scriptures. And so we have the term the Samaritan Pentateuch, 
the first five books of the Bible, which the Samaritan said, this is the word of God, but all the rest of it is unnecessary and redundant, and we will not read it or use it. And they ignored the rest of Scripture. And they robbed themselves thereby of that which was divinely provided as a means of knowing God. All the emphasis, for example, in the Psalms about drawing near to God in heart and spirit and longing after him as the deer pants for water when heated in the chase, all of this they were strangers to. And what I want to say to you this morning, my dear friends, is this. But the danger for us is identical to the danger for the Samaritans. But you may say this morning, I'm an evangelical Christian. I believe the whole of the Bible, all 66 books of it from Genesis to Revelation. But I say to you, you may nevertheless be robbing yourself of that which is divinely provided for you as a means of knowing God. Why? Because although you profess to believe all of the scriptures, you may be ignoring much of their teaching in your daily living. And the effect is exactly the same, that you are doing spiritually what the Samaritans were doing physically. And the knowledge of God that is mediated through Christ and by means of his word, you are ignoring in your Christian life because you're just taking a verse here and there to get you through the day. And you're looking at this passage, perhaps, because there's some crisis in your life. And there is nothing vague, you see, about true spiritual and scriptural worship. And what we need to do, beloved, is sit down in the presence of Scripture and realize that all of it is dealing with the subject of how we are to worship God. And it's not a question of sitting in church and having some vague emotional afflatus or feeling on occasion that there are goose pimples that arise on our bodies. It's not sitting there and having some vague thoughts about God. But what it really means is knowing God in the way that our whole minds and our whole hearts and our whole spirit, our whole beings are caught up with a desire to know God in all his glory as he is revealed to us in the scriptures. That's what Jesus is saying to this woman. You do not know what you worship, but we Jews do know what we worship. My friend, let me ask you this morning, is it your approach as you come to the house of God to want to ponder upon the infinite glories of your Redeemer? to call to mind the riches of his grace, to bear in mind the exhortations of the Psalms and the prophets and the New Testament writers, that as we approach God, our whole souls and hearts are to be enlarged and drawn out into his presence because we are taking seriously 
the fact that worship is determined by God's word that gives to us the knowledge of what he requires. But as it says in our own Westminster Confession of Faith, the true worship of God is not thought up of man's imagination, but is instituted and prescribed and limited by what God has appointed in the scriptures of his word. Now you see, that addresses a problem that I've heard some of you mention to me. That in your spiritual life or in your enjoyment of worship, something you say is missing. Something's gone dead for you, spiritually, as you read the scriptures or as you come to the place and the house of God. And do you know the place where this is going to be set right? It's in turning back to the fountain of the knowledge of God. Bathing your souls, beloved, in the scriptures of God's word again. Beginning to see again the glory of God revealed there. That's where that condition of soul will be dealt with and nowhere else. And you know, incidentally, that's why the exposition of the scripture is so important as a part of true worship. It's not important because hopefully a godly man is taking some text or passage and dividing it up in a helpful way and revealing certain things to you that you haven't seen before. But the importance of the exposition of Scripture is that by it, God the Holy Spirit is exposing God's people to the truth about himself. And their hearts are being searched and they're coming to know him better than they've ever known him before. The knowledge of God is the essential prerequisite for spiritual worship. We know what we worship. Do you know what or who you are worshiping? Now the third thing from this passage is the essential nature of spiritual worship, and you have it in verses 23 and 24. Let me read those verses again. Yet a time is coming, Jesus says, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipper the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, do you notice that Jesus emphasizes these things twice over? Once in verse 23 and once in verse 24, in identical phraseology. Those who worship him must do what? They must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, let me take what Jesus is saying and bring it to you in a threefold form. He's telling us, but the essential nature of spiritual worship is, first of all, a worship that engages the heart. That's certainly his meaning in the phrase that we must worship in spirit, although the meaning is wider than that. And the lesson, then, to be learned is in contrast to what the Samaritan woman had in mind and even what the Jewish worship was at that time. You see, the Samaritans came to their temple on Mount Gerizim with great enthusiasm and no doubt great sincerity. But their worship 
was devoid of truth because they ignored scripture as we have seen. And the Jews came to their worship in Jerusalem certainly in the true knowledge of what God required, but as we learn from the passage in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, they came without spirit. And they produced worship with lips, without their heart consenting to what they offered. And you remember how the Lord Jesus in one place in the New Testament described their worship as being in vain. Do they worship me? Offering that which is outward, Jesus said, and not from the heart. Drawing near with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And the emphasis that Jesus is making is that true and acceptable worship in its nature then is not the kind at Gerizim and it's not the kind at Jerusalem even in Jesus' day. But it's a drawing near to God that engages the whole of our hearts. And it means the very spirit within us being caught up by the Holy Spirit so that our hearts are fully involved in it. So that spiritual worship is not locational. It's not defined by bodily movements that we make, but by hearts moving up after God, and desiring him with all the energy that is within us. Now it's interesting that the word spirit, the Greek word pneuma, and the Old Testament Hebrew word ruach, has as its root the very concept of energy or power. In the Old Testament it's used, for example, to describe the wind that blows. And certainly what Jesus is telling us is that this activity in its nature is an activity that summons us with all our energies to give them primarily to the Lord, to be channeled and focused and directed to him. Our whole desire going out to know and serve the Lord. Now as you think about it, it doesn't come easily, does it? We're so easily distracted. But one of the great aims of the week that has preceded the Lord's day, beloved, should be to bring our lives into such conformity to God's word that by the time Sunday has come supremely, the whole of our energy is going out with desire to be in God's house and the fellowship of his people and in his worship. The whole energy of our life going out to him in worship. Now isn't that a thought? Engaging the heart. And if there is no heart in worship, there is no worship. Now the second thing, of course, in these words, is that spiritual worship engages the mind. Do you notice that it must be in truth as well as in heart or spirit? And it's important to remember that we have a rational God. You know, as I've studied some of the Eastern religions, I'm just appalled at the irrationality of the Hindu gods or the other gods of pagan religion. 
And as a result, what they require of their votaries, their worshippers, is not rational response and conduct at all. It's often very irrational things, things that don't make sense, that don't add up. But our God is a rational God, a reasonable God, and he has made us rational creatures. And he intends for us, in our worship, to use our minds. And therefore we should constantly be on guard in these days in which we live, because you know what's happening in so many Christian churches and denominations around us? is that there are forms of worship coming into the Christian church with their emphasis primarily on the emotions or on the aesthetic appeal of worship or on some other aspect that divorces worship from the primary consideration that we give our minds to God, that we worship him with our minds. And as I look at these things, so often I see them bypassing the importance of the use of the mind. It can so easily happen. And we come into a position where what we are offering to God is totally unbiblical. The position that says, it doesn't matter how I worship so long as I get something out of it, so long as I am satisfied whereas the emphasis of biblical worship when we approach God with our minds is not that I am satisfied and that I get something out of it, but that he is satisfied, and if I may say so reverently, that he gets something out of it. And that's the issue. And that's why the Holy Spirit in worship comes to us and renews our minds so that we can think God's thoughts after him so that he motivates me in my mind to come receptively into the presence of God and in my mind to determine that what I will bring to him is that which he has appointed in the scriptures, in the singing of psalms to his praise, in the reading of the scripture, in the elements of biblical worship that are set out, for instance, in our own Westminster Confession of Faith, our minds being fully engaged, in that worship of God. You know how easy it is to sing as pants the deer for cooling stream when heated in the chase. So pants my heart, O God, for thee and thy refreshing grace. And your mind isn't on that. She's wearing a different hat this morning. I haven't seen that one before. There's Mrs. So-and-so. When was she last in the congregation? And what this says to us, you know, when we engage our minds in the worship of God, is you cannot worship God, beloved, and do something else at the same time. When you sing those psalms and biblical hymns, you must pay attention to the words and let them settle into your conscience, because our worship is not mindless. It is governed by the use of the godly mind. Now thirdly, as I draw to a close, spiritual worship, Jesus says, must engage the will. And you notice there in verse 16 that Jesus has said to this woman, go call your husband and come back to me. And of course, that is the instance 
that we must worship in spirit and in truth. And that was the difficult thing for this woman. She had had five husbands already. She was evidently a prostitute, a woman of the street. And it was obvious that the woman she, that the husband she was with now was not a husband at all. And Jesus, with prophetic insight, understood this, that there was a whole area of this woman's life that was not subject to the requirements of God as he sought to make her a true worshiper of himself. So that true worship, my friends, must engage not merely the heart and the mind, but also the will as well, so that everything in me becomes subject to the sovereign purpose and pleasure of Almighty God. And unless that were put right, her worship would be worthless. Now, if we had time, we could see that all through Scripture that emphasis is made. In the life of David, who had been going to the temple for nine months, during the development of that illegitimate child of his by Bathsheba. And it was only when he came into the realization of his sin and his need to get right with God in this matter that he was able to say in Psalm 51, You desire truth in the inward parts. Spiritual worship engage engages the will. Or you find it in the teaching of the Lord Jesus when he said, if you come to bring a gift to the altar of God and remember there you have some cause of offense against your brother, go and put it right and then come back and offer the gift at God's altar. Spiritual worship engages the will. And beloved, as I draw this to a conclusion, is it not necessary then for us to realize these things? That spiritual worship is of supreme importance. That spiritual worship has the vital prerequisite of the knowledge of God. That spiritual worship in its essential nature involves the heart and the mind and the will. It is in spirit and in truth. It is in the sense of go call thy husband that the moral areas of our life that are wrong might be put right by the grace of God. Is the Holy Spirit teaching you in these days to worship in spirit and in truth? Even you boys and girls who are present here in this service. Because God the Father is seeking such. The whole aim of the gospel, beloved, in what it designs for you, is not merely salvation in Christ, but it's a salvation that leads you to be a true worshiper of God. And if that fails, all else has failed as well. And the Father is here amongst us this morning, seeking such worshippers of himself. And you know, in the end, that's all that matters in our worship service. The only thing that really matters is, is God here? 
and making himself known amongst us. May he find in us a truly worshipping people. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this passage and what it teaches us. We know that in many things we fall short, but, oh, enable us, our Father, as we think of these things, to come to that full purpose and endeavor of wanting with all the energy of our hearts to worship God in spirit and in truth. For his name's sake, amen.